Welcome, everybody, and happy Independence Day weekend. And so, really, what could be more American than to talk about sex? It's kind of a national pastime. I was watching the Pops Fourth、uh, of July concert last night and saw a commercial that was just completely centered around sex. It was an advertisement for hummus. I thought, "Wow, we're really, we're really swimming in it."、Um, But just to bring you up to speed, if you're just joining us, we've been in a, a series for a number of weeks now, going through the Sermon on the Mount,、uh, Jesus' profound teaching、uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. We spent the first several weeks looking at kingdom people. What are the characteristics and qualities of the people of the kingdom of God? And then last week we began、uh, a new chapter called Kingdom Morality. And last week,、uh, a key verse. Well, I'll look at it later. But last week, we looked at how Jesus relates to the Old Testament. How he said that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And then Jesus goes on from there to offer six case studies in Old Testament law to show what he means by that. So last week, we looked at the first of these case studies, where Jesus looked at the command "Do not murder" and went be- goes far beyond the act of murder. And address the anger and hatred that's in each of our hearts. And this week we'll look at a second case study where Jesus addresses a matter of Old Testament law. So if you'll open up with me to Matthew chapter five again. Now the thing about going through a long、uh, passage of scripture like we've been doing in a deliberate way is that you don't get to pick and choose and then skip over the parts that make you uncomfortable. And this is one of those passages. So let's just dive right in, shall we? We're going to begin in Matthew five, verse twenty-seven. Jesus says, "You have heard that it was said, 'You shall not commit adultery,' but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away." It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So maybe you thought you were just going to have a nice, relaxing, easy Fourth of July weekend. You know, not think too hard about anything. And so did I. But. Then I was immersed in this text this past week, and I I will invite you to dive in with me. I want to begin by describing the context of this passage. So, these four verses—they are not the be-all, end-all of what Jesus and the rest of the Bible has to say about sex and relationships. This is not an exhaustive study of what biblical sex and relationships look like. Therefore, this sermon is not an attempt to be an exhaustive, all-encompassing treatment of biblical sex and relationships. For example, there's plenty of places in the Bible that celebrate sex as a wonderful gift from God when enjoyed on His terms. And just so you know, I'm all for celebrating the good gift of sex. But this is not one of those passages. This is not one of those times. This passage has a context, and we looked at that context last week. And one of the key verses from last week, we'll put back up on the screen from Matthew five, chapter、uh, verse twenty. Jesus says, "For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." So Jesus is here contrasting kingdom righteousness and kingdom morality 
with the righteousness and morality of the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the day. Now, Christians today, we love to bash the Pharisees, and it it makes sense. Jesus was often very critical of them. But in the Pharisees' defense, I want to give you a little history lesson that I think is relevant. Where did the Pharisees even come from? Who are these people? The Pharisees were a group that formed a couple of centuries before the time of Jesus, when the powerful superpower in the world at the time was Greece. The Greeks had a powerful empire that rolled over other nations, including Israel, and the Greeks had with them a powerful culture with their pantheon of gods, their great philosophy and centers for higher learning and education, their great art, great athletics, and great power and great wealth. And the Greeks saw their culture as so advanced that it was their moral duty to teach the rest of the world to be more Greek in their life and in their thinking. And Israel's in the middle of this, and now for a Jewish person who worships one God and who is faithful to the Torah, the word of God as they had it, their culture clashed quite a bit with Greek culture. And there was quite a bit of pressure on them to become more Greek. And sometimes this pressure was intense and violent. There were Jewish people who were forced to worship other gods, bow down before idols, or to eat unkosher food, or they'd be put to death. And a number of Jews were put to death for that reason. Those are extreme cases, but more so it was the pressure of just a a superior, a, a powerful culture over time just asserting its will on another and saying that your culture is really out of step and out of date and you need to get with ours. And so the Pharisees looked around and they saw their fellow Jews kind of caving to this culture, this pressure from the Greeks, and they were concerned. And so the Pharisees, they weren't priests, they weren't official religious leaders, but they were kind of a popular movement to help equip average everyday Jews to stay faithful to the worship of one God and to stay faithful to God's word in the midst of this cultural pressure. So that's not bad. That's great, in fact. And we could use more people to help one another stay faithful to God and to his word amidst culture. But where the Pharisees, in their good intentions, they they clearly went wrong. They were clearly a little off track in some ways because by the time Jesus comes around, he's saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So kingdom righteousness, somehow different from that. And that is the context, the larger conversation that today's passage is a part of. So getting back to this passage, when it comes to sex, uh, sexuality, there is a way that um, Jesus wants to go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. He says, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. And this was right out of the Ten Commandments, and the Pharisees would say, this is a line, among others, that just should not be crossed. Do not have sex with someone you're not married to. And Jesus affirms that. He didn't come to abolish the standard, but he does say, but I tell you, It seems like Jesus is challenging the Pharisees' understanding of sexual morality, which perhaps begs the question, well then, where does Jesus draw the line? Where does Jesus draw the line? You know, this language of the line is something I've found to be common in different Christian circles that I've been part of over the years. 
uh, trying to define the, the limits of what's acceptable and what's okay and, and what's not, the parameters. I've had lots of conversations in my work in campus ministry with students. Maybe they start dating and they want to know, well, how far is too far to go with my girlfriend? You know, that, kind of with the intention of going right up against it as far as they can without actually sinning. Or the last question's like, well, shouldn't it be okay if I do X, Y, or Z just as long as I don't cross this line over here? That's the tone of a lot of these conversations. Of what's the line? Let's define what the parameters are of what's, what's good and what's not. And the Pharisees did that too. Now, most of 21st century America looks at the lines that Christians have drawn around sexual morality and find them, frankly, ridiculous. The majority of students that I meet on campus, I have a whole different kind of conversation along these lines, and professors for that matter, too. I've heard people on campus describe uh, Christian sexual morality in in the following ways. Um, Strict, prudish, ridiculous, strange, admirable, but not for me, uptight, outdated, unrealistic, impossible, repressive, oppressive, unnatural, and unhealthy. Most any restriction these days on our sexual freedom is seen as a problem we've got to get rid of. We've got to tear down the lines if we're ever to enjoy truly happy and fulfilled lives. But make no mistake, we do still have lines in our culture. Drawing lines is not just a Pharisee thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's a human thing. And we all do it. So Dale Keene, who's a professor at St. Anselm College, wrote a great book recently called Sex and the I World. The I World being kind of our 21st century secular America where individual freedom is paramount. Uh, and he does a great job analyzing how we got to this point and what are some of the underlying values of this I world we live in. And Keene lists what he calls the three taboos of the I world. There's nothing official about this list, but uh, one person's attempt to define what's off limits in our culture, and I think he does a really good job. So there's these three things that we'll see. So one, one may not criticize someone else's life choices or behavior. One may not behave in a manner that coerces or causes harm to others. And three, one may not engage in a sexual relationship with someone without his or her consent. Otherwise, do whatever you want, but just do not break these three taboos. You could look at the sexual morality of the I world, compare it to that of the Pharisees, and they look very, very different. And they are quite different, but they also have a fair amount in common. And to illustrate that, uh, kind of a, a visual to try to spell this out. So when it comes to drawing lines, so we've got the Pharisees on the one hand, and they draw a line at adultery, probably at other things too, any kind of sex outside of marriage as God defines it. Um, and Jesus uses adultery as an example. And this divides people. You've got one, on the one side those who have committed adultery versus those who haven't. Those who have crossed the line you have the sexually immoral, and those who haven't crossed the line, they are, in their minds, righteous. Because according to this logic, as long as I don't commit X behavior, I'm good. I'm good. I'm righteous. Unlike those people over there. Now, 
The uh, iWorld does this too. So let's look at, at the line drawn by secular culture. We'll say that it's the three taboos of the iWorld. A totally different line than that of the Pharisees, but it is still a line that ought not to be crossed. And as you can see, there are again those who've crossed the line, those who haven't. And the crossing of those lines uh, evokes a certain amount of wrath, anger, and judgment by those who have not crossed the lines and consider that they're therefore good. Same, same logic, good guys on one side, bad guys on the other. So where does Jesus draw the line then? Back to our question. I would say it's here, at a pure and faithful heart. A pure heart. Last week we saw Jesus go beyond the command, do not murder, goes beyond murder to the actual anger and hatred inside of our hearts. And here again, he goes beyond the act, the external act of adultery to address the lust, the condition, the purity and faithfulness of our heart. A few weeks ago, if you were here, you remember Jesus said, blessed are those who are pure in heart, and we learned that it is out of the heart that all of our behaviors and external actions flow. And his righteousness is a matter of the heart. So in the Pharisees' desire to help people be faithful to God and to his word, one area where they really got it wrong was they reduced faithfulness to outward behavior alone. But Jesus says, yeah, don't have sex with people you're not married to, but the issue runs much, much deeper than that. It's a matter of the heart. And Jesus, therefore, critiques the Pharisees' standard of righteousness. The I world does that too, but while the I world would say, oh, the Pharisees and these religious people, their standards are way, way too strict, Jesus says, oh, no, the problem is that they're not nearly strict enough. John Stott says that by select, focusing on select behaviors, the Pharisees kind of limited the scope of God's commandment. He says this, they gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. A conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. And we all do this. The Pharisees did this by their logic, as long as I don't do X, I'm good. And that's something many Christians do as well. The I world we live in also has a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. It's a totally different one, but it's convenient nonetheless. But here's the thing. Jesus' definitions of sexual sin and sexual purity are not convenient for anyone. They're not convenient for any of us. Where Jesus draws the line doesn't allow any of us to claim that we're good and that we're righteous and others aren't. Which of us is pure of heart? Which of us is completely faithful in every way in our hearts? None of us, but God alone, God who is perfectly pure, perfectly faithful, perfectly good, and perfectly righteous. And on the other side, all the rest of us who are in complete and total need of his grace. We're all reduced to objects of grace in Jesus' kingdom morality. Now here at The Journey in our vision statement, we say that we aim to be a grace-saturated environment that welcomes seeker and saint alike. 
A grace-saturated environment. One thing that looks like is a grace-saturated environment. It doesn't follow the I world or the Pharisees. It doesn't uh, land on narrow, conveniently narrow definitions of sin and conveniently broad definitions of purity. Because the minute we do that, we've divided ourselves into those who need grace and those who don't. But there is no such thing as people who don't need grace. Instead, in a grace-saturated environment, we point to and proclaim and urge one another on to the fullness and the highest standard of all of God's righteousness and all that God calls for. We don't do it because we've got it and we're good, but we do it as fellow people who are equally in need of his transforming grace. And we point to the highest measure of all of what God calls for and all of God's righteousness, not because we're righteous ourselves, but because he is. He is fully righteous. He is fully pure, fully good, fully faithful. And that's the kind of righteousness that his kingdom people hunger and thirst for. And he calls to us all as objects of grace who need our hearts purified to be more pure, more faithful like his. He calls to all of us in his grace to purify our hearts, no matter what our starting point, no matter where we're coming from, no matter how long we've been alive, no matter what our track record, no matter our history, no matter our particular struggles or inclinations, no matter where we're coming from, no matter how we were raised or how we responded to how we were raised, Jesus calls to us all to purify our hearts and make them more like his. It's a call that goes out to all of us. It's a call that goes out to virgins and to people with a promiscuous past. And it's a call that goes out to the married as well as the unmarried among us. It's not like when you get married, all of a sudden a button gets pushed and there you are, you're pure and faithful of heart. Believe me, you married people know this is true. The call to a pure and faithful heart is extended to the married people every day. It's not like we achieved it when we put a ring on. And for those who are unmarried, the call to a pure and faithful heart is extended to you every day. And single or unmarried people are not just the poor souls unfortunate enough to not have found someone to complete them. but They have every bit the opportunity to be faithful to Jesus' vision of sexual morality as anyone else because it's a matter of the heart. Jesus doesn't draw the line in a place that's convenient for any of us, but he does extend his grace towards all of us who who need to be objects of it. How do we respond to all this? We haven't even gotten into the rest of the passage yet. So Jesus first does his thing. He goes beyond adultery. You've heard it said, uh, don't commit adultery. And then he addresses the lust in our hearts. And then he goes on, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, first response here. What? I mean, are you kidding me? I thought the first part of this passage was tough, but good Lord, now we're, we're being uh, emasculated? And, and I mean, goodness gracious, what, what is Jesus talking about? This is heavy. Being dismembered? 
Now we can't just blow this off though. This teaching is right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, regarded by many as the greatest teaching by the greatest teacher who ever lived. Even many non-Christians will agree that much of what's in the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly wise and profound for our lives. So it's not like Jesus had a moment of temporary insanity in the midst of an otherwise brilliant teaching. He meant to say this, and in fact it's quoted other places in the Gospels too. I think he said it more than once. He was deliberate. So we need to take Jesus seriously and not dismiss his words or blow them off. But surely we can't take this literally, can we? Some have. Great early church father and theologian Origen of Alexandria read this passage and castrated himself. Ow. Other people did too, you know, to the point where an early church council, one of the great early church councils in the third century, uh, actually addressed this and banned the practice for the church. So I don't know how many people were doing these kind of things, but it was enough that it came up in the church council and that the early church leaders said, no, don't do that. This is not the way to, to live out this teaching and respond to it. Okay, so then how do we not take this literally but still take it seriously? What is Jesus trying to get at? I think Jesus does two things here simultaneously. One, he reveals the seriousness of the issue. And at the same time, he reveals the futility of trying to solve it by our own efforts. Jesus reveals the seriousness of the issue, of our hearts. Lust is a serious thing. Seems like from this passage, Whatever short-term pleasure it may offer is not at all worth the long-term results. It seems worth doing whatever it takes to get rid of lust, and that lust can require drastic action. So two questions you may have. Well, A, what is lust then? And B, is it really that bad? I mean, come on. It's just the way we are, right? Well, first, what is lust? So lust is not simply looking. Jesus doesn't say whoever looks at a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoever looks lustfully or with lust. So lust goes beyond looking, kind of a, a looking 2.0, if you will. You know, we, we, we look, all right? We can't help, we, we see people. We're not to go around life blindfolded and never see anyone or anything. We, we see people, we look, right? And we find some people attractive, we can't, uh, people are attractive, they, they look good. Now that's the way God made them, so there it is. And by and large, attraction is something that really is involuntary uh, and, and something that just happens. But lust goes beyond that, it goes beyond looking. It's what we do with what we see and how we respond to our attraction. Lust is letting our attraction be at home, kind of linger and set up shop, make a home in our minds and our hearts. It, we kind of feed it, and it, it starts to grow and take on life and expand. Uh, we start to imagine and perhaps fantasize and then maybe wonder and crave and covet. Then the longer this goes on, the further it goes. Eventually we get to a point where we feel like, oh, well, if I don't act on this, if I don't act this out, I'm going to go crazy. But before we ever get to that point, there is a process, sometimes a long process, sometimes very quick, but there is a process that 
begins with our initial lusting. And as powerful as lust is, lust is always at least somewhat voluntary. Something of a choice. That's lust. Okay, so you might ask, well, all right. As long as I don't really hurt anybody, is it, really, is it that bad? Is it, is it this serious? Fair question. Let's think of it this way. Imagine, if you will, a world without lust. That may be impossible for an American, but just try. Imagine a world where there was no lust. What might be true of that world? Well, one, there would be no actual adultery, no painful extramarital affairs that leave scars on many of those involved. There would be no pastors and Christian leaders who wreck their congregations and make Jesus look bad through their moral failures in this area. In a world without lust, there would be no prostitution with all the harm that it does to people and to whole communities. In a world without lust, there'd be no need for multi-billion dollar industries that cater to people's lust. Nobody would sell their bodies to make a living. There'd be no porn addiction that wrecks brains and relationships. We wouldn't objectify anyone by reducing their worth to what they can do to satisfy our lust. No objectification of others. In a world without lust, there would be no sex trafficking. No boys and girls all over the world in desperate situations kidnapped or sold to be abused and violated for the satisfaction of other people's lust. There'd be no need. In a world without lust, there'd be no date rape on college campuses. No rape or sexual assault of any kind. A person could walk the streets safely without worrying about being accosted or even catcalled or leered at. There'd be no sexual harassment of any kind. There'd be no minors preyed upon by trusted adults in a world without lust. There'd be no painful distance and break in the intimacy between spouses because one just can't quite live up to the imagination and the images and the fantasies of the other. Now, I know not all lust necessarily leads to all those outcomes. But I do know that all those outcomes can trace their roots back to lust. So it would be good if there were no lust. It would behoove us to do whatever we can to eliminate lust from our lives. And in particular, for Christians, lust is one of the primary obstacles to true intimacy with God that we were made for. It would be good to eliminate it from our lives. But how? Because Jesus reveals the futility of trying to solve this by our own efforts. This is another way the Pharisees had gotten it wrong. They had gotten, made righteousness a matter of external actions and doing it ourselves. And Jesus then carries their logic to its extreme outcome to show its futility. He says, okay, well, if it's about achieving purity and righteousness by your own external actions, then gouge out your eye. Then you'll never see anything that causes you to lust. And cut off your hand. That way you'll never do anything that causes you to sin. And, you know, as Dallas Willard says, by this logic, you hope that maybe then someday you could roll into heaven as a mutilated stump. <laughs> but then, oh no, even that mutilated stump can still lust. 
because it's got a heart and it's got a brain and an imagination and a memory bank. So then what, a, a lobotomy? Cut out your heart? You'd have to die to eliminate lust fully from your life. We can't conquer this ourselves. So where are we to turn? Well, we turn, my friends, to the cross where this same Jesus who blows apart our easy and convenient definitions of sin and purity, this same Jesus who elevates a standard of righteousness we could never achieve on our own, this Jesus went to the cross where his body was cut and marred and mutilated and put fully to death on our behalf as he bore the full weight of what all our lust and sin calls for. Our lust calls for drastic action. And there was never a more drastic action than in all of history and all the universe than the very Son of God himself taking on a body like ours and bearing the full weight of all of our impurity and all of our lack of faithfulness. He took drastic action for us. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't you read this with me from the book of Galatians Chapter 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The word that gets translated desires here is the Greek word epithemia. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 that gets translated lust. Look at a woman with epimathia. And so here our lust, our epimathia has been crucified and put to death in Jesus. So we're dead to it. It's dead to us. Now, lust is very much still around, still alive, still part of our lives to some extent, and to some of our lives, it really is a significant part, has quite a hold and and quite a grip on our hearts. But ultimately, for the person in Jesus, lust will not prevail. It will not prevail. Lust won't win. Now, the world we imagined, this world without lust, with all of what it entails, that world is coming. The kingdom of God that Jesus has brought to us and will bring in full when he comes again is free of lust. Lust free. And we, his kingdom people, can taste a bit of that freedom right now because lust is dead to us. We're dead to it. It's put to death in the body of Jesus. And so we can make choices to rid our lives of lust, sometimes drastic actions, choices that put us out of step with culture. And we don't do it in order to earn righteousness, in order to make ourselves okay, make ourselves good, but we do it because in Jesus, he has made us pure, and we're just living that out. We ought to choose not to lust, to choose not to indulge, not to let lust have its way, not in a legalistic, pharisaical kind of way that makes us righteous, because that's just not who we are anymore. We're dead to lust, and lust is dead to us. By virtue of what Christ has done for us and in us, there's a purity of heart and life and a faithfulness available to us that the culture would say is impossible. And really, why wouldn't they? It's only possible on this side of the cross, and so it seems odd to me to expect non-Christian people, people apart from Christ, to live out Christian sexual morality. I mean, how, how is it possible? We can't do it apart from Christ. How would anyone else? So as a church, as we engage with culture 
around issues of sex, if we're going to talk about Christian sexual morality, we better first and foremost point people to Jesus Christ and to the cross. It's the only way his morality is possible. How else is it possible to live out kingdom righteousness apart from him? It's not. There is no other way to kingdom righteousness apart from the saving power and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the whole point of the passage that we've looked at today. And so I invite you all, my friends, this morning to turn to Jesus Christ. When we worship, we are going to take communion. It's a beautiful thing. And when you do, you'll hear these words, body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. We all need to hear these words and receive the truth behind them. Some of you are Christian people who are trying to live righteously, trying to do things God's way, but you're trying to do it by your own power. Trying to do it yourself. You think you can. You think you can be good. You think you can be righteous, but you really can't. And you need to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. And receive that. Some of you are Christians who've perhaps given up on righteousness in sex or in some other area of your life. The power of lust, it just seems too powerful or some other thing just seems too powerful. And you need to hear these words. Body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. To break the power of those things. And some of you have never really received the gift of grace and forgiveness in new life that is in Jesus And these words are for you too. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Sounds a little bit like a call to die, and in some ways it is, but ultimately it is a call to life for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as broken people. We are a sexually broken people We live among a sexually broken people. Lord, we we lift up our culture around us that really doesn't even know its right hand from its left. And we pray that you would make yourself known and draw people foremost to Jesus Christ and to the cross. You would make us a grace-saturated environment that draws people to Jesus Christ and to the cross here at The Journey. But we lift up ourselves and we come before you as we are this morning, Lord, and I pray that you would help each of us to hear and receive your words of your broken body, of your body put to death for us that we might live. Lord, for any of us who need a word of forgiveness today, would you pronounce that forgiveness over our past mistakes, our past failures, for those who need healing, for those who need hope for a fresh new look on life to bring that. Those who just need resolve and need your power to make godly choices, to live out who we are in you, would you pour that out as well? We all need you. We are all objects of your grace. And would you pour out your grace among us today in Jesus' name? Amen.